You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, You can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. All right, guys, welcome to today's show. And I am really excited about today's episode. This next guest is amazing. It is Kyle Green from Greenway Outdoors. And not only is his story about getting into the outdoor media space and having his own TV show insane, He is super passionate about learning and staying humble and just trying to get as much information from other people as he can. On top of that, he's taking the information that he gathers, putting it into great content and trying to get more people into hunting and fishing and making sure that this legacy of hunting and fishing in the United States continues on long after he's gone. And so I'm just pumped. You're about to hear some of the most passionate podcasting you've ever heard and getting to hear his story his journey of going all in with his buddies and now living the dream that a lot of people think is impossible a lot of us grew up watching hunting tv and it was just like man that would be amazing obviously i'm never going to get to do that this guy decided that's what he was going after so let's jump into this episode with kyle Like, he was doing things that were just badass. That was one of the coolest moments of my life. I was really scared, but knowing that Dane had the gun, I did have the rifle, like, we would be okay. All right, guys, welcome to today's show. And joining me on the show today, I've got Kyle Green with Greenway Outdoors. Kyle, what's going on, man? How you doing, brother? Pretty good. Uh... You're down in South Carolina right now, chasing after thunder chickens, aren't you? Trying to. Yeah. Yeah. We're in South Carolina right now. And uh, we got here a couple days ago. And so far, we've been getting the runaround from Eastern gobblers. And they say in this area, specifically South Carolina, that this is the hardest area in the country. And I'm sure people have arguments on that, but the hardest area in the country to hunt longbeards. And I am starting to see why, because they are pretty smart. (laughs) <laughs> it's gonna make for a lot of good content i would imagine but man you should have come over to missouri these chicken or these turkeys are dumb here i am not a good turkey hunter and i somehow kill one every year 
Yeah, I you know it's it's a, it's a different ball game here. Uh, I grew up hunting turkeys in Michigan, and had plenty of experiences and and good times with them here uh, in Michigan. But coming to South Carolina, everyone's talking about it. And the headquarters here for National Wild Turkey Federation is here. We're coming here to film some content with them um, and even some promotional stuff for conservation for History Channel. And uh, they're like, yeah, and there's turkeys. We'll get you all set up in the lodge. As you can see where I'm at right now is awesome. It's super cool. But our luck with actually, uh, um, you know, shooting birds has been a little difficult so far. But we just outsmarted. Like We go there. They're there. We leave. They're there. They're, you know, everything like that. But just. We had one get within like 60 yards of us today, but we were never able to close the deal. And looking back, maybe I should have pulled the trigger, but I decided to hold up just because the camera guys weren't ready and everything else. So um, hopefully this afternoon or tomorrow morning will play out better for us. Man, you've got you've got a lot more patience than I do because I, I keep going with, oh, man, I'm going to film my hunts. I'm going to get this on camera. I'm going to do that. My mind, I can't get it to switch over to like production mode. I'm just like it's time. Like I got to pull the trigger. I, my camera will be right here on a camera arm or I'll have a GoPro and I just forget to hit the record button. And I'm like, man, after the fact, I wish I would have done it. But in the moment I'm like, I got to shoot this animal. Yeah. It's, it's, I have to tell myself sometimes too, is like, I feel myself getting super excited when I'm going out just hunting. If I'm taking my girlfriend out or my nieces or something like that, I find myself getting super excited and I'm like, why I do this all the time, but it's because it is a different mode. You know, and um, at the end of the day, I've had to let, you know, trophy animals and different things that I'd be really excited about hunting walk just because it wasn't the right moment for the cameras and that sort of thing. And and um, especially when we hunt with other people, you know, and this goes for a lot of the content that you see in the outdoor industry, too. There's a lot of people hunting that happen to be filming. We're filming about happening. You know, we happen to be hunting and I, you know, I got to keep that in the in the forefront. But with turkeys, man, it's just like. They got to die, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I. What is it about South Carolina, do you think, that's makes it so difficult? Is it the cover? Is it the predator pressure, hunting pressure? I, it, I mean, I would say it's the birds, honestly. Um, to me, it seems like it's the birds. Um, it, it just, they seem smarter. They seem smarter. Um, they've got one here that they've determined is like seven years old, and it's like the classic hunting show stuff where they call it the undertaker. Um, this specific bird, they've got a name for it and stuff, but I just think it's the birds and the way they're pressured, the way they're covered, um, specifically the pressure though, they just seem to be smarter. They just seem to be smarter. Um, today we had one that hung up at 300 yards and I, there's a big ditch in between us. He could have easily gotten over it if he would have just been nice. But, uh, um, yeah, I just, I just feel like they don't play. There's plenty of hens. There's plenty of, plenty of hens around. Um, so they don't need to play as much and you make one false call and they'll flag you every time and be on their way. So I just, I think it's the intelligence of the birds. What made them smarter here? I don't know. Um, but they, they, they do seem to be smart. I know Eastern turkeys, you can talk to anybody and like people will rank it, but I would say something like probably 60% of hunters would agree, maybe 70% that Eastern turkeys are the hardest. So, you know, you can, you can, you're always going to have the outliers who are like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about or this or that because no one seems to ever agree completely in the outdoor industry. But yeah, I'd say 60% would at least agree that Eastern turkeys are probably the hardest. Well, I'm glad I didn't start turkey hunting in South Carolina because I probably would have given up by now. Uh, I 
I enjoy it for sure. And I'm getting more and more into it every season, but I'm very fortunate to have virtually unpressured land, tons of turkeys, and somehow I've figured out a way to pull the trigger each year I've been out. So, uh, yeah, if you need, if you need a place to come down and shoot some turkeys, whether you're filming or not, I've got some, I've got some turkeys that will make you feel like the world's greatest turkey hunter. I, we would love that. <laughs> I would, if ever you bring some up here or down here today, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll just but go no, pack we, them we up should, quick and drive them over. We should, we should do a hunt together though. I think that'd be awesome. Yeah, it would. Uh, why don't you share with people? I know we've been talking for a little bit. Why don't you share with people a little bit about yourself, kind of how you got into hunting and then maybe your journey into the hunting industry. Cause you've got a TV show. It's been on a couple different networks and now you guys are on history channel which congrats. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a big move for us recently. Um, and it, we've been in the industry for about eight years now. Um, the, the show itself started, it's, uh, me and my best friends actually. So we started about seven and a half, eight years ago. Um, my background was actually, uh, when I turned 18, I started selling cars. I worked at a dealership and, uh, I ended up stockpiling quite a bit of money. And after I had done that for a while, Uh, there was a new local medical talk show in the area. And this is like when Michigan was doing like the film incentives and stuff like that. So a lot of TV shows and stuff were popping up. And uh, I had my background was actually I was a certified personal trainer as well. I just did that out of like interest in personal training. And at the time, I heard about the show and they needed a personal trainer on the show. So they called and um, I ended up doing like an interview with them and I ended up going on set. And after being there one day, I like looked around and saw the cameras and the lights and all the stuff. And I just got so excited about filming that I was like, I want to work here. So I was like, are you guys hiring? And they were like, uh, no, we don't have any paying jobs right now. I'm like, well, I'll work for free. And that's how you pretty much, you know, bulldoze your way into anything. You tell someone you work for free and that you just won't go away. And eventually they say yes. So I started working there for free. So I walked away from a six figure job. Um, where I was doing great. I was a manager at the time. I was running the internet department and I walked away from that in order to, you know, figure out something else that I just found so interesting. Uh, stay single for a while. That's my best advice for a young guy out there or a young woman trying to get into this. Cause I was able to do not easy to walk away from a six figure job and do that. But, um, after a few weeks, um, I learned how the medical talk show worked and they, they had some ideas for episodes and each episode was like about a specific thing. It could be breast cancer. It could be, you know, ear infections. It could be whatever it was. So I started researching all the topics that were going to be talked about. So then in the production meetings, my job was literally to get people coffee. I started like saying ideas and then eventually I got a seat at the table. After about six months of doing that, I ended up being nominated for three Emmys. And I was the vice president of that show. Um, and I, I we ran a production crew of about 85 people and learned the industry. So I did that for a couple of years. And then I wanted to step away and do my own thing. I'm an entrepreneur at heart. And my love and passion was always the outdoor industry. And I always say that the medical industry itself didn't act like that medical talk show. It made me know that starting a show and managing it was possible and production and how to organize things. But that's about it because in no way, shape or form is inside a studio, anything like what I do now. Uh, but it did make it possible. And then my background at least got get, got me in the conversation with some of the right people. Um, and then I went to, I sat down on my friends. I was like, all right, guys, we're all going to put in every dollar we have. We're going to risk everything and buy camera equipment. 
here's how we're going to do it. Here's how we're going to run it. And then we came up with the idea. And this has been the same premise since day one. 60% of hunting and fishing licenses are sold to white males over the age of 55. And the problem with that is that's what pays for our natural resources, our species sustainability efforts, our anti-poaching efforts, our forests, our clean water. All of that money comes from the sale of hunting and fishing licenses, yet 60% of that money is coming from an age group that is almost done, which yeah. means in 10, 10 to 12 years time, they're going to be out of the industry. And then we're going to have no way to replace that, although I'm sure the Democrats want to tax us more. Uh, but that won't even do it. Um, the outdoor industry makes up 3% of our GDP, which is actually more than oil. Um, so that gives you an idea that, uh, you know, it's it's extremely important uh, to our economy and the entire country, our clean water, our forests, all that. So we needed to create content that would inspire the next generation to get into the outdoors. When I looked at the the, the current spectrum of, of hunting and fishing shows, um, I grew up watching them, like you said. You know, I watched, we had something called Michigan Out, Out of Doors on PBS in Michigan. And then when I was old enough to get cable, you know, we had the, like the outdoor networks and stuff like that. I always grew up watching Ted Nugent and I loved his energy and all that, you know, all those different shows. And uh, um, once I once I got a look at the the whole groundwork of everything, though, I said, you know, there's no real high production. And I'm talking movie quality production yeah. in 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 the outdoor industry. I'm seeing a lot of GoPros. I'm seeing a lot of kill shot shows. I'm seeing a lot of blood. I'm seeing things that might not want to bring a new person into the industry. And I was thinking about this this morning, and this is like a weird concept, but you see all these mounts on the wall here behind me. It's like every, I, I walk past them and it's cool, but if I shot that deer, you bet I'd be looking at that deer every single day when I walk in, right? Yeah. Ab amongst all the other ones, even if the other ones were much bigger, it's like the mounts are so significant to the person, but they have little to no value to anybody else. But the person who did the hunt, they have a lot of value. And I believe that hunting shows kind of went down that same path where it became like an infomercial thing about sponsorships and the production quality suffered because really all it was about was getting the memory of the kill shot. And I was seeing that in all the content as far as that infomercially feeling like NASCAR type of, uh, you know, product pushing. And I was like, anybody new to the industry is not going to watch this and be like, hell yeah. You know what I mean? I yeah. want in. That's that's what I want. But yet if you talk to a hunter or a fisherman and you have a real conversation with them, they're going to tell you, about the sunrise, they're going to tell you about the smells in the morning, about the good times with their buddies, the feelings that they get, that seeing that bobber go under for the first time or feeling that trout hit the line or or seeing that buck come in and that overwhelming sensation and feeling that they get. But I never felt like it was articulated well uh, in, the, in the outdoor content. So my dream was to create that. Now, if you look at our season one stuff, you'd say, well, you failed because <laughs> it sucked. Um, but we worked very hard at it, you know, and, uh, and we come at it from a very humble standpoint is it was funny too. It's like, I probably overdid it. Cause the guys here that we were hunting with, they're like, so you haven't really hunted turkeys before. And I was like, well, why'd you say that? He's like, you asked me a million questions. Like you're brand new. I was like, if I come in acting like I know everything, then you're not going to teach me anything. And we tried to have that super humble mindset going into all these different locations where we would go out and we would cover one species per episode. It would be about a specific tactic for a specific species, about 50% hunting, 50% fishing. We might be jigging for walleye on the Detroit River. We might be in Hawaii hunting access deer. We might be in Texas hunting pigs, or we might be, um, you know, noodling for catfish in Oklahoma. But whatever it might be, we covered the gear that you would need. So someone knew who's like, well, what do I need? What do I need to take with me? 
So we had a segment called the Greenway Gear Checklist. We covered the conservation of the species for hunting turkeys right now. In 1960, the wild turkey was extinct in Michigan. But because of hunter's dollars and conservation efforts in the National Wild Turkey Federation, now we have a huntable population. When I joined NWTF, I buy my hunting license. I buy the equipment I need. All that money goes into creating more turkeys and better habitat and more sustainability. So because I hunt, there's more turkeys. And I felt yeah. that that decriminalization and that understanding wasn't really given in the content either. Um, people did a good job of giving thanks, I will say. Um, and I liked a lot of the religious factors that were in there from people, but I never felt like the decriminalization to teach new people about hunting was there. And in such a divisive world, I felt like it was important using truth, logic, and common sense to explain those things. So people be like, Oh, that's what conservation is. I get it. I, I understand now why those dollars create more turkeys and he's, Maybe only taking one, although if you're in South Carolina, you probably won't even do that. So um, the, that was kind of the point of the conservation, the gear. We would show everyone the hunting or fishing trip in a reality show style format. I did some market research at the time. And at the time, reality shows and cooking shows were the top two forms of content with millennials and now Generation Z. So because of that, we show you how to cook what we get at the end of every episode, but not over the grill with a little pepper on it and blah, blah, blah. We try and do like a five-star cuisine recipe in our studio kitchen that would get you amped about wanting to eat it. So we kind of cover that field the table aspect while covering the conservation, the gear, the actual hunting or fishing trip, uh, conservation, and then the cooking. And then we always include a Bible verse and kind of the lesson we learned in the field. The idea behind that is... Um, you know, we call it planting mustard seeds, which if you know the mustard seed story, yeah. the mustard seed is so tiny, but it creates this great big tree that's powerful and strong. And in the same sense, we do the same thing with the Bible verse that, you know, we we have this lesson that we learned in the field that the audience can relate to. And then we sneak in a Bible verse in there. And by then they already start believing they don't even know it yet. So that's kind of how we uh, we go about doing that. And we started out with that same mission and it's the exact same as it is today. We've always had that clear cut path, but just now recently we're finally getting to, to what the vision really was as far as production quality goes. The team that's with me is the same team that's been with me since day one. We've never broken apart. It's the exact same people. I believe in loyalty and friendship and family. Um, not to mention the fact if you're going to be traveling the world constantly and on the road all the time, it's good to do it with your best friends. So yeah. that helps. Um, and I just have the best team in the world. They're relentless at improvement. They're relentless at getting the best production quality. Right now, they're out filming. Um, so in this episode, you'll see the truck doing all kinds of things. And you'll see me talking in it. But they'll spend the next three hours building the scene of whatever that will be. I don't even know. I'll have to go out there and get told. But um, that's what they're working on right now because they just never stop. So I have the best team in the entire world. It's all best friends. And then I'm rambling now, but you had mentioned how we got into the industry. I guess that's a little bit of the story of how we started is the outdoors was my passion. That 60% of hunting and fishing licenses being sold to white males over the age of 55. That was the thing that was stuck in my head. It's like, I, I wake up every morning. Like if I succeed, the world might actually be a different place because if we don't have those funds for our natural resources, as soon as those national parks get sold, as soon as that state land is gone, as soon as that next generation isn't involved in hunting, you're going to hear things like, well, you don't need guns anymore. You're going to hear things like that as soon as we're not hunting anymore, as soon as we don't have people involved anymore. And I, I truly believe that if we can succeed and make the content the best it can be to inspire that next generation, then in that sense, you know, we might save 
you know, what this country will end up becoming. And that's what wakes me up every morning. And I literally believe that. I know it probably sounds a little far fetched, but I do believe it. No, that's that's amazing. And I think we need more more minds like yours out there doing the same type of thing, because it's funny going to trade shows and I talk to different people about the hunting industry and I've heard from multiple people like, hey, it's the same old white dudes doing the same old white dude stuff. And, you know, it it does it. it the buildup all culminates at the one second it takes to pull the trigger to send the arrow to, you know, get the fish in the boat. And people want to know how, how do I do that? I know I can pull a trigger in the moment. How do I get to that point? What gear do I need to use? What tactics and strategies? How do I find the right property, the right public <clears throat> land to go after them on? And so the educational side of things is really what's going to get people out there. And if they can see it and they can, they can see just how attainable it is, how doable it is, they're going to be way more likely to get into the sport, especially if they have somebody to help coach them along the way. All right, guys, if you've been listening to the podcast, I'm sure you've heard me talk about the helicopter hog hunt that I did down in Texas. Now I went down there with rogue Texan outfitters and Landon and Brandon, the owners put us on the animals. We killed 150 pigs and 19 coyotes just from the air. On top of that, we went out thermal hunting at night and got up close and personal to more hogs. I didn't have to worry about bringing guns or ammunition because all of that was provided for me and it is to this day the most action-packed day of hunting I've ever had. I stand by what I've said in the past and that's that helicopter hog hunting is the funnest thing that you can do with pants on. In addition, they offer sandhill crane hunts and predator calling. So if you're looking for the most exciting hunt of your life and something that you're going to want to come back and do year after year, go check out roguetexan.com and book your hunt today. Yeah. And you know, I, when I think about it too, is like, um, when you watch these shows and people are passing on like 12 point box that I would do, I've never even seen anything like that in my entire life. So they can shoot a 16 point buck named Fred that they've been watching for eight years that has all these points on this property that's fenced in that has, you know, 800 acres that they spend $2 million on a year. And you're like, you're a kid watching this and you're like, well, that's not, that's not, that's not me. That's not a thing. It's not relatable. So I'm not against, obviously, I'm not against mounts. I'm not against anything like that, but we're not. And I hate, I hate to say this because I'm, I'm all in support of trophy hunting in the sense that, you know, antlers are a trophy, you know, and putting them on your wall and remembering the hunt and enjoying the meat um, and not wasting a thing on the animal is so important. And that is a trophy. So I don't want to say that, but it's like the, these, every show having 16 point monster bucks that no one's ever seen being like the whole culmination of the entire season or episode or something. It's just not relatable to people. And it's the same old stick over and over again. But man, you see someone out there for their very first time, shoot a five point and their life's just the most fulfilled they've ever felt in their entire life. I mean, my first year was a, it, it would have been to some considered a spike to some, it would have been considered a four point because it was just two little things in a coming out like that. I've never been more excited about anything in my entire life. And I ate every scrap of that meat and those antlers are on my wall now. And I'm just as proud of that as anything else. So I think too, doing adventurous things that aren't just whitetail deer, turkey hunting and bass fishing and getting out and do, you know, we we're hunting pythons in the Everglades. We're in the mountains in Idaho, ice fishing. Uh, we're in Maine hunting moose. We're hunting Buffalo with native Americans in Oklahoma. You know, we're doing all these um, things that are attainable, but, 
you know, we're not, we're, we're not shooting the biggest moose you've ever seen in your entire life. We're not, you know, the, you know, the Buffalo hunt is something that is attainable for people. If they finally get drawn on one of those super rare tags that are tough to get, you know, we try to make it more relatable, but super high adventure, but stuff yeah. people could actually pull off and kind of, you know, we, we take a lot of consideration into which episodes we do. Uh, as far as traditional episodes go, this Turkey episode for history channel is probably the only one that is like a very, very normal one for outdoor type content. You know, like I said, the pythons and the buffalo and things like that are kind of off the wall a little bit. We like to do things different. The weirder, the better. Yeah, no, I get that, man. And I love I mean, the whole premise behind the nomadic outdoorsman is traveling and getting to experience cool things all over the place. And I'm not paying to go on crazy hunts anywhere. You know, I'm not the guy that's out there shooting 400 inch bulls or 200 inch bucks. And I want, I think that it's valuable for people to understand that and to get, um, a realistic snapshot of what hunting is. The average guy is going to go out there and shoot a two year old deer that might have six, might have eight points. And there's nothing wrong with that. I don't, I don't have a strict, like, this is the only deer I don't have. I have to shoot one. That's this old. I have to shoot one. That's this many inches. If I go out there, I get excited about it. I'm going to send, send an arrow. I'm going to pull the trigger, you know, and talking with people all around the country who kind of have that same mindset. Nobody knows them from Adam. One of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite guests of all time, his name was Will Worthington. This guy was one of the most passionate people I've ever talked to. And he just went around Florida and fished neighborhood ponds. He's like, I get off, Dan, I get off work and I go with my rod and I'm walking down the sidewalk and I cast and I catch a peacock bass. And I mean, like his energy was just electric. And to, to help people understand, you might, you might live in the middle of the city, but you could probably go right down the street and fish for something and have a great sure. time to take your kids with and, you know, support the conservation department in your area. Uh, you, you could maybe go one state away, two states away, three states away. You could be hunting and fishing in five different states every year on a really tight budget and have the time of your life at each one. It doesn't have to be a big extravagant, go to Alaska, catch salmon, shoot a moose, shoot a caribou. You can do awesome adventurous things right in your backyard. Right. Yeah. And it, I, I couldn't agree with that more. And it's more or less just getting people to go outside because once they start breaking in, when they start getting familiar with things like, you, you know, you grew up in Wisconsin, I grew up in Michigan, we were talking about ice fishing a little bit, is like that was a very attainable thing. They call it the poor man sport, uh, you know, because you can you get a bucket and a pole and that's all you need. And the poles are like seven dollars to start, you know, like the old school schoolies that you could get. And that's how everybody kind of starts. So you can get out there real cheap and then the, the baits, maybe two bucks and you're good to go. But it's like that started me out where it's like, well, every winter I go ice fishing. Okay. And then all of a sudden uh, rabbit hunting. Okay. Shotgun shells weren't too expensive for a little kid. I was able to go out rabbit hunt, start doing that. And then it's like, it starts to, then it's like, wait, wait, you can shoot ducks. Are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, and then, you know, it grows from there, but it's just getting people out there for the first time. And I will say, uh, too, there, there seems to be two types of people in this, in the outdoors that I I've encountered and I've encountered thousands of people now. And you've got the people that are really, really excited to take out kids. Matter of fact, the lodge that we're at right now, and I'll give, I'll send you the information on it so you guys can see it. You know, they take out a few different kids that are either orphans or, uh, you know, a single mother takes them and, uh, uh, you know, has them. And they take them out every year for turkey hunts and different hunts and things like that. And you see a lot of people involved getting women in out the outdoors is a, a much bigger thing now, which I love to see. 
getting the kids in the outdoors, which I love to see. You see people really passionate and kind of have a wherewithal of like, hey, we got to get the next generation involved in it. Um, guys like my second dad, his name's Pete Tomio. He was very involved. I mean, he's the one that gave me my first deer hunting opportunity. Um, and from that morning on, I knew I was going to be doing this for the rest of my life. So, you know, those planting, those mustard seeds matter. And then there's another group of people that you seem to find them when you go to an archery shop or you go to a gun shop and that sort of thing. And it's like a condescending, um, judgmental, alpha male thing and i blame it on the fact that there's no grading scale right so like in in school if you took a test and you got 80 out of 100 then you got an 80 percent and there's no way fans are butts about it and if somebody got 90 they did better than you but in hunting like if a duck flies by and i shoot it i'm the only one that got to experience that duck and that scenario on that day with that temperature with that wind with that movement facing that way right so because there's no like grading scale for it, it's like it creates like this alpha mindset and everybody's better than the next guy. And it's like they're, they're like you walk into a gun shop and like, obviously, I know what I'm talking about or a bow shop. And it's just the condescending nature and the alpha male mentality in the outdoor industry that's there, especially in the on this side of things where you and I are. I just think it it does such a disservice. I mean, it's so awesome to be nice to people. Matter of fact, the, the woman here that does all the cooking at the lodge that I'm at right now, she goes, it's so great having people here that actually talk to me. I was like, people don't normally talk to me. She goes, people are either really, really nice here or they're rude. And I'm like, that's the, that's what I'm talking about in the industry. It's like one or the other. And I just like those alpha, we've grown to tease them, especially when they come in on our TikToks and stuff. But um, <laughs> I just think it's so much better to be nice. And it's so much better to insp inspire the next generation because you will find the nicest, purest, kindest people in this industry and you will find the most judgmental assholes you've ever met in your life, too. And it seems like it's one or the other. Um, and that's why I was excited to do your podcast, because I knew you were on this side. Um, but it's 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 sad to see that, you know, that is the case. So I think giving that conservation message coming in from a humble standpoint of like, listen, I do so many different things from turkey hunting to access deer to ice fishing. I can't be an expert in anything. So I learn from people in the show because I'm humble enough that I don't have to be the expert on everything. And hopefully we'll get other people like, okay, he did it. And he didn't know what he was doing. I can get out there and do that. And just taking at it from, you know, that standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's, there's that element of competition, I guess, between hunters, but also there's just, there's a whole group of people that are just out there to ruin your day for whatever reason. And I'm with you. I like to troll the trolls. <laughs> I don't know if that's yeah. <laughs> productive or not, but it's very fun to me. Like, all right, we can go down this rabbit hole. Um, but yeah, a lot of people just form really strong opinions about things they know nothing about, or they just make sure. assumptions and then form opinions off their assumptions, which were wrong to start. And to to be more inclusive, and I'm not a huge fan of that word just because of some of the connotations that come with it. Um, yeah. But to be more inclusive as a hunting community and understand like exactly what you said, have some humil humility, know that, you don't know everything. You can be taught something by everyone you encounter. And if if we could wrap our heads around that and quit making these false assumptions, we're going to be way better off. We're going to be way more united. And from the outside, people are going to come in going, man, this is amazing. Like, I want to be part of that group. These people seem awesome. They seem very supportive. And you find that in different communities all over the place. Unfortunately, when people discover hunting and fishing in the outdoors online, 
they you only have to go four lines down and you're going to find some negativity <laughs> and people who know how to do it better than everyone else. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, um so we posted uh, a TikTok recently and it had uh like 500,000 views and like 2000 something comments and it was about the the National Wild Turkey Federation and some of the studies they're doing and I was explaining the studies and you had people saying like everyone knows that idiot why are you bothering to even say it and then you had other people saying that's stupid you're an idiot for believing it nobody knows that and it's in the same they're like on top of each other and you're saying the opposite things but no matter what you're just looking to be mean and then like people will be like oh he, he you know he doesn't know anything about turkeys come to georgia and we'll show you how we do it down here and i just it's like and they're like, they call me a Yankee. I'm like, what year do you think it is? Like, like, you know, he's like, what year is it? <laughs> like, we're calling people a Yankee still. Um, so it's, you know, silly stuff like that. But then, you know, for the, you know, 200,000 likes that it has, you just got to remember that there's 200,000 likes and only, you know, 50 mean comments. So it is what it is. But yeah, I end up always trolling them back. And uh, I got one guy good actually yesterday. It was, <laughs> I shouldn't, I know it's bad, but no, he was, I love oh, this. I know. Uh, he posted about uh, I posted about uh, um, uh, turkeys as well. It was another turkey video, and he popped on and said, "I'm in um, North. I'm in northern Minnesota, and they're considered a nuisance here. And we blast every one of them to get rid of them." And I was like, uh, "He oh, he said they're an invasive nuisance." And I said, "Well, actually, turkeys are not invasive, and uh, I'm surprised you think they're a nuisance. Have you ever eaten them before?" And he said, they are invasive and they're not native. And I said, they are native to Minnesota, period. Even northern Minnesota where you're at. He said, no, my family moved here in 1890 and they weren't here then. And now there's, since 2000, there are some. I said, okay, well, in the beginning of the 19th century, there was actually a lot of them, but because of overhunting, he said, in 1900, that was a forest fire, you dumbass. I was like, well, the 19th century started in the year 1800. And I know that's probably too big of a, uh, you know, a scenario for you to understand because the word, you know, the number 19 confused you. But that actually started in the year 1800 when you had a lot of them. And now they're back. He said, well, I'll shoot everyone I can. I was like, okay, all right, well, you get rid of them. He's like, they're destroying the woods. I'm like, I doubt it. <laughs> you know, it's like, what, I wonder what do what I even say to this I, I wonder what it is because it's like every single thing that we talk about as hunters, fishers, and outdoorsmen, it, it's controversial. Like you can't find anything, it seems like, that everyone agrees on. And the outdoor industry is like walking Trump, <laughs> you know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, no matter what you do, like, man, I really enjoy this fresh air. Oh, yeah, you like the fresh air? Maybe you should start hunting urban areas. Like, what? Yeah. Like, what? Really? Is that what you're coming back at me with? So we came up with a name, Dan, and I think you'll enjoy it. And I'm sorry if you shoot one, but it's it's the running joke of what we do. And actually, Kellen shoots one, so it's even funnier. We decided that we call those people 28 gaugers. <laughs> and uh, we're actually making a shirt that says, don't be a 28 gauger. And then it's going to have all these stupid sayings on it that they say, like all the different things they say. Cause like the whole point is like we were, it, it all started cause we were out moose hunting and this was a DNR officer who said this to me. He's like, everyone comes out with these bazookas for moose. You don't, I don't use anything bigger than a 243. And I was like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That's a dumb thing to say. 
but it's like the, this minimal minimalist act, you know like oh i use a pellet gun to hunt bear you know what i mean it's like yeah. okay you win you know it's like um because i was using a uh 28 nozzler he's like geez what do you need that bazooka for and i was like okay well it's a moose so um but it, 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 so then we, it all got started is like when you like go upland hunting and these people that, you know, they start out with a 12 gauge, then go to 20, then they're at 28. So we, and they're like, you don't need anything more than that. But if the bird's 20 yards away, you certainly do. So um, that's, that's kind of the joke is like, we call those people 28 gaugers and they're all over the place. So we're going to make a shirt and then put all the phrases on the back. We have like a list of like 50 right now. We're going to narrow it down to like the best 30 and then put it on a shirt and say, don't be a 28 gauger on the front. And then all the phrases on the back. I think it's going to do well. I hope I it does well. There's enough idea. people like me and you that are it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. There, there's going to be people who take it for what it is. And they're like, this is good. This is funny. Like, we all know somebody <clears> like that. And then there's going to be the people who are like, I'm going to buy this shirt just to burn it. Uh, there's. Yeah. You'll always get those. My buddy. Perfect. <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> buy 20 of them. Burn them all. Uh, my my buddy Hunter, he's down in uh, Alabama, and he is he's really great at creating the satire stuff. I mean, he will make TikToks, and the whole thing will be like, the only thing worse than a Benelli shooter is someone who shoots a six five, right? And it's just <laughs> because he knows everyone's just gonna flood the comments, and he has built a pretty successful TikTok off of it. He's like, yeah, the only thing you can shoot out there is a Remington. Or, you know, uh, you can only shoot an 870. Anything other than that, you're not a man. And people just yeah. lose their minds. And it's just, like, it's good, fun humor. But then you realize yeah. there's people just, they just don't understand. Like, they don't, they can't right. wrap their heads around somebody making a joke that's actually very applicable and everybody in the outdoors is going to understand. I love that. Yeah, I like the 6.5 thing because that is such the great, that would be fun to do. Yeah, I, I love that. That, that's the perfect thing to say. You know what I mean? Like, oh, you know, anyone who doesn't use a semi-auto shouldn't be allowed to hunt. And they're all like, oh, I use a pump. You can't say this. You know what I mean? It's oh, yeah. like they just pump up But that's the 28 gauges. And there's too many of them. It's the worst. I, I, I tell you, though, I think it's because there's no grading scale. I would love if God could come down and be like, all right, everyone get together. We're going to do this. Yeah. F, 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 F. <laughs> right down the line. All right, guys, I'm excited to introduce the new age of accessing private property for hunting and fishing with Infinite Outdoors. I joined the Infinite Outdoors crew on a duck hunt in Colorado this fall, and the experience was unmatched. We were able to book the property right on their app, get directions to the blind, and had the whole place to ourselves, all for a super reasonable price. Infinite Outdoors has developed a unique way to combine conservation, technology, and private land access all through their U.S. built app and website. By working closely with landowners and on-staff biologists, they aim to bring you the best parts of accessing private land at the touch of a finger. They provide adventures for big game, turkeys, waterfowl, fly fishing, upland birds, small game, predators, and more. As yearly leases get more expensive and secluded public land gets harder to find, I believe this is the way of the future. To check it out for yourself, download the Infinite Outdoors app or visit infiniteoutdoorsusa.com and use code NOMADIC15 for 15% off your annual membership of $39.99. That would be amazing. Um, 
let's let's jump back into hunting because i'm curious what you've got planned uh for this year for the uh season that you're filming right now i mean 2023 kicked off and uh yeah what what's on the agenda what hunts what fishing trips yeah so i i know we had mentioned a little bit too and i was supposed to touch on it for is the the history channel stuff um we started out with uh um we were on like pursuit channel and then moved to sportsman channel and then now obviously we signed this deal with history channel it's going to be in the second half of this year i know what the starting date is but i'm not allowed to say it because things and uh get moved around and changed and that sort of thing so i'm not allowed to say right now but um it'll definitely labor day would be a good um time of year to start a show i'd tell you that right now right around that time yeah uh but uh you know if you were going to do it and uh you, we'll be in the outdoor block with show you, you, in the outdoor block right now shows, you know, be like duck dynasty alone, um, swamp people, mountain men, but a lot of those shows are in the rerun season. So they'll be building up to us being the new show. It'll be a 10 episode series. You'll have, um, there's five Saturdays in a row and it'll be two episodes per Saturday, both brand new episodes. So there's 10 in, you know, total. And so far we have four that is we did a moose hunt. That was in Maine, and that moose hunt was so interesting because we worked with the Department of Natural Resources there, and they have a winter tick problem. And get this, dude. So you, when you think ticks, what's the first thing you think? I mean, I just think Lyme's disease. Yep, disease, yeah. exactly. So these ticks are killing moose, but not because of exactly what you would be thinking, disease. They're killing them from blood loss. Imagine how many ticks would have to be on a moose for blood loss to be the reason they died. 80% is the mortality rate for the, the, the calves right now in this area. Jeez. So it's a 1,600 square mile chunk of paper owned, uh, paper company owned uh, property managed by the DNR. That's where our tag was for. And they are basically eradicating the moose for lack of a better word. Um, the tick is species specific. So like if you get rid of the moose, you get rid of the ticks. So they're trying to basically eradicate the moose, including the calves, actually mostly the babies and the moms. Those are the ones we're really trying to get rid of, which is messed up because you bring yourself to shoot a baby. You know what I mean? Oh, but yeah. they want you to, although the baby's like 300 pounds of great meat. So, you know, you probably figure it out, but, um, they, uh, they're trying to get rid of them so that the ticks will go away give it a couple years and then they'll start reintroducing moose back to the area to save it. So we were a part of that process. We were able to harvest a moose and kind of live off the grid, like eight hours back into that property. Like the 1600 square miles has one main road that goes all the way from Maine, all the way to Canada. And uh sidebar, this is super random, but you told me you liked the riff. So I got to tell you the story. There was a guy that was trying to like get into the United States and he got all the way in down this road and it was like he they figured he went like 110 miles on his bicycle and they picked him up because you're not allowed to have bicycles in that area. And that's how they figured out that he was immigrating into the United States. <laughs> so he made it all the way here. But the only reason why he got caught is because he did it on a freaking bicycle. Because he was riding I, his bike. I know. And to be honest with you, I felt I, I was rooting for him. I'm all for border walls. But him, I wish he would have made it. Yeah. Just um, keep on cycling, so man. Sad as shit. <laughs> He's like, he made it all the way. And then you did that to him. But anyhow, we were back in there and there's nothing but that one road, which is a dirt road and it's sketch at best. I mean, you don't want to be going down that road with a trailer. Matter of fact, the guy we went with said he's been down there like 20 times. And this is the first time that he didn't have to change a tire. It's that bad. And then there's two tracks that go off of it. 
So we went like seven hours into this lake that nobody goes to, stayed right on the water and like used it for cooking and everything like that, stayed in the tent and uh, lived off the grid for like seven days and the get a moose. It was unbelievable. I mean, that trip and the storyline in that show is so good and so real. I mean, the, the story is the story. And that's what's so cool about it because it I don't want to give too much more away, but it's it's something special. And oh, there was grouse everywhere. I mean, and they're dumb as hell. They're like your turkeys. Like you could use a rock and limit. Like they're dumb. Like they're oh. everywhere we went, the first morning we get out and we like get out and the uh, grouse crosses the road, big male. And I'm like, I got to shoot this thing. He's like, all right, grab the shotgun. I run out, put orange on, shoot it, grab it, get in the car. We go like it, another 50 yards. Another one comes out. I'm like, what are the odds? It was get a 28 out. gauge, right? No, no, it wasn't a 12 gauge. I obliterated the thing like you're supposed to, like the good Lord intended. And then um, we go up a little bit further and another one goes across the road and I get out and shoot it. I'm like, well, that's my limit for the day. You're out three a day. And I was like, that was like eight minutes. I was like, what are the odds? Well, they were pretty good. It was like that the entire trip. So we ate grouse every night for dinner. It was awesome. Jeez. So that was pretty cool in the show too is like, the only thing is you couldn't get them to fly. So I'm sure I'll get the uh, the hunting police on me for that because we we're ground swatting them. This one, I was like stomping and he was like dancing with me. Like he wouldn't, I, I'd stomp, he'd stomp. I couldn't get him to fly. These things have no clue what hunting is. Yeah. Um, it was unbelievable. <laughs> so that was kind of funny. Um, but we ended up shooting a bunch of those and eating them. And if you ever wanted great meat in your entire life, that with the um, we're sponsored by Rufus Teague, but it wouldn't make a lick of difference if we wouldn't. I'd be telling you this is just the same way. It's a spice company. They have this uh, poultry rub. We put that on it with some flour and pancake mix uh, together, all three of them. And then we deep fried it right there at camp in corn oil. Dude, it was obnoxious how good it was. I mean, we were eating that every day. The meat, it was funny. AJ, our director, had never had it before. He's like, it's like glowing white. I'm like, dude, it's the cleanest thing you can eat. It's so good. He's like, if chicken and butter got together and made a baby, that's what that would be. So that is that oh. is the best way to describe that grouse there. So that's just one episode. Um, and it's uh, tough to pack in all that into a half hour, but I'm excited to. Um, and it, it is quite the trip. And then we did a buffalo hunt in Oklahoma. And that was with, if you're familiar with the Comanche Indians. Now, this is uh, this is something I've been combated with many times. But in my research, I have found that it is correct that the Comanche Indians are the only Native American tribe to not surrender. And Theodore Roosevelt actually became an honorary member. And they were the buffalo protectors, basically. So when the white men were coming and killing all the buffalo in order to put the Native Americans on welfare so that they could own them and take their land from them, then that they were the ones that were killing the white man to stop them to do it and protecting the Buffalo. And the, the goal of it too, was they would go in <clears throat> and they said, okay, you can have this land as long as you don't need any food or anything from us, you guys can keep the land good. Well, then the white man went in and killed all the Buffalo. So then they didn't have enough food and that they would have to go on welfare. And that's actually what got them to surrender and lose their land. But the Comanche Indians never did. Theodore Roosevelt had so much respect for him that he actually uh, became an honorary member. Um, Henry uh, Arms, the gun company, made 300 rifles as a commemoration to them and actually had the great – we had the great-grandson of the last Comanche chief, but that 
Comanche chief was actually engraved into the gun and his, I got to see it. And um, we had his uh, great grandson out to do a ceremony with us over a campfire and tell us the stories of what they would do before Buffalo hunts and how to be successful and the spirituality of it. It was interesting too, because he's a Christian pastor. So he had like a really interesting outlook on everything from his ancestors, but also, you know, his Christian uh, roots. We had a, a veterinarian come out and actually talk to us about proper shot placement uh, to make sure that the buffalo wouldn't suffer. But in addition to that, <clears throat> he also told me that um, disease is actually one of the biggest problems with buffalo and that the white men and the Indians are not the ones that killed off all the buffalo, that a majority of the buffalo actually died from disease. And the narrative that the white men actually went in and killed them all is laughable, no matter what Dances with Wolves should tell you. So um, it turns out that it was actually uh, mostly disease. And that's something that they're still combating today, um, mm. trying to stop them from dying from disease. The wild herds, as well as the Native American property owned herds, as well as the commercial farming. So um, we got out and did a buffalo hunt. We harvested two. Talk about meat that you could eat forever. Oh, my gosh, is it good? Uh, better than beef in every way, shape, and form. Clean, clean, clean. That's the only way I can describe it. Um, and we had a freezer full of that at the office, although it's dwindling fast. We made a lot of friends after shooting those buffalo. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> oh, man. Um, that That's amazing. Some of that meat. Yeah. Yeah, that's going to be... Those two episodes specifically are ones that I'm super excited about. And then with the new camera equipment, I always go back to that production mindset. But the uh, the new camera equipment, we're shooting in 6K with cinema movie cameras that are just the story, the storylines, the guests, the camera equipment, and just having the best crew in the world. I am the luckiest person alive that my best friends are also the most talented people in the world because – it's going to come together like no other. And I, it's just, we live, sleep and breathe it all the time. This is all I talk about. It's all I think about. It's all I do. Uh, it's just building that story because I know when people watch it, I know the feeling that I'm trying, I'm getting, you know, in those moments and we're creating that for people when they watch it. And I just hope that we're planting those seeds to, you know, push people forward. Um, and then we also did some crazy stuff. We just got back from the Fort Everglades. We we're there like 14 days. Um, hunting pythons in the Everglades. Now, a lot of people don't know this, but there's 250,000 pythons in the Everglades right now, roughly, give or take, honestly, give or take 100,000 because they don't really know. And because they're so well hidden. And there's other shows out there right now. I know Swamp People's doing a version. And I'm not going to say anything about anybody specific, but here's what I will tell you. We were with the number one python hunters in the world, and we got one in 14 days. So whenever you see content Jeez. and they have like five in one night, that happens once a year, maybe that people get that lucky. So if you're seeing it consistently, then you're not really seeing it for real. Yeah. Um, I will tell you that hands down, there are not that many, there are that many pythons, but finding them is just impossible. Um, and uh, a lot of people don't know this, but the Everglades are gone. I'm here to tell you they're gone. 99% of every animal with fur is gone. Two species per week were going extinct for the last three years. And now the only reason why that number's gone down is because we're pretty much out of species. Everything's gone. You got a couple of raccoons left, a couple of panthers left, crocodiles, alligators, and pythons. And the pythons are killing everything. Uh, they're out competing all the natives. And uh, it was a mixture of a few things. There was a facility there. Um, I want to say it was in like early 2000 or late 90s that there was a hurricane that came in 
and this facility bred pythons for pets, food, and leather. Uh, or I guess you'd say, you know, for their skins. Yeah. Or different things. And basically, the facility got wiped out. The pythons got out. The ecosystem was perfect for them. They thrived like everything else in the Everglades is, you know, there's lots of invasives there right now. Um, they got out, did well. People let pets go as well that outgrew their tanks and stuff. And these things, now there's a breeding season. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're fully functioning in that environment and they're moving as far north as they possibly can. So we went out there to tell that story, but what's crazy about it too, and this is bureaucrats being morons is the like way that works. Like the, the permits that we had to get to be able to go in the Everglades to actually harvest these snakes was so hard to get. It took months they only allow like six to 10 people into the Everglades National Park to do it at all. And those people who are experts who are there every night are lucky to get one a night. Sometimes they'll get three, but a lot of nights they get none. And then these shows expect you to believe you go out and they're laying everywhere and you just grab them. That is not the case. Um, that's complete BS. It's never real. It's always fake. And uh, um, it makes things really difficult because people believe you just go out and catch them but that's not the case. And the numbers just keep going up. And then the uh, uh, policy wise, they don't allow enough people to go in there. You can't take a firearm in there. So you have to catch them by hand. They're catching 18 foot pythons that will kill you with their hands. Cause that's the only way you can do it. And then you have to euthanize it with like a nail gun, but it's beating the hell out of you. I mean, we caught a, you know, nine footer and it bit uh, one of the camera guys. I mean, it went nuts, it pooped all over Jeff, which was hilarious. Uh, but, uh, um, you know, it, it's it's a chaotic thing. They're so strong. They're so powerful. Um, the one thing we have going for us, though, is they only have one lung. So if you can get a hold of them and wear them down, once they get tired, it's like they're just like lethargic. Um, yeah. So that's you just got to wear them down without getting bit. And their teeth, are, they're like hypodermic needles and they're pointed backwards. And if they grab you and you try and pull away, you can't. So that episode from an interesting factor uh, was definitely incredible. The stuff we saw was nuts. Um, and the people we had in that episode were just really, really good. So that one's one of the ones as well. So um, now we're here doing a turkey hunt. We also did a survival episode in the 10,000 Islands area on the back of a Sea-Doo Fish Pro. And uh, we slept in hammocks and ate what we caught, um, which would have been easier without Red Tide in retrospect. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but we did that. And um, so those are those are just the five or six that we have so far. Uh, but we got a few other adventures coming up. I know we're doing a bear hunt in September, uh, which I'm really excited for in Maine. I'm really pumped for that one. We're going to be doing some sturgeon fishing in July. We've got a gator hunt coming up next month as well. Um, so there's a few other ones on the list that I'm excited about too. Man, that that's all incredible. You're living the dream, and I love I love everything that you guys have going on. The education, the information, the um, recruitment aspect, trying to get new people out there, teaching them how to how to cook good meals, not like we would cut up our venison and cook it well done and dip it in ketchup when I grew up. I mean, that was like just a normal meal for us. And so like teaching people, yeah. not only can you get out there and do this, but it's actually good. It's not like you don't have to explain to everybody, ah, it's going to be a little gamey, you know? No, you can yeah. pick that right out of it. So, uh, I, I love if you it. You know how to cook? If you know how to cook, it's it's a it's a game changer. I mean, it's it's funny too. Is like we had some bad experiences, especially in the first few seasons. Our director AJ, he's not a hunter at all. 
he's big into filming and editing and stuff like that. But he's been on more hunting trips than almost anybody you'll ever meet. But he was never a hunter, so he hadn't tried a bunch of wild game. So getting him to try the wild game, like when we were first learning, he was like, this is terrible, especially Jeff's chili. He made this chili one time, and I swear to you, it was just seeing you in tallow because he didn't know what he was doing. But don't <laughs> let him tell you any different either. It was terrible. It smelled bad when it was cooking. That's when you know something's up. But now with all these recipes and all these different ways to cook it properly, it's like all AJ eats is wild game now. He made a before we left, he had a a, a moose pot roast going in his crock pot at home, which is funny because it was like so outside of his norm. Now buying meat at the grocery store sounds disgusting. Like even the thought of like what it probably went through as far as how they processed it and what they did, and not for me, man. I got I, I'll get it myself. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I love that, man. And I really do appreciate you hopping on. I feel like you and I could talk for five hours. I know you're down there in South Carolina with the goal of shooting a turkey, and uh, I want to let you get back to your hunt. But before we hop off, where can people find you? Where can they follow along both social media and watching the show? Yeah, so if you look at our, our Facebook and Instagram pages and Twitter pages are just the Greenway Outdoors, so at the Greenway Outdoors. Um, and then as far as History Channel goes, we'll be airing, like I said, in the second half of this year. Um, so watch for that in the outdoor block. There'll be a lots of announcements from the History Channel as well about the show. Uh, but yeah, follow us on social media. The GreenwayOutdoors.com is our website. On our YouTube channel, you can see some of our past episodes there right now. There's not too many there, um, but but soon you'll you'll get to see this new content that I'm talking about. We also have a weekly video podcast, which we got to have you on as a guest. Um, we do that every single week. It's released on Fridays at 5:30 uh, Eastern, and then we also have. Uh, our outdoor education series, which is like how-to videos to teach people all the how-to stuff that they need to know, but in a in a place that they can find it and actually use it. Because Lord knows when you're trying to tie a fishing knot at two o'clock in the morning and you don't know what you're doing and you go on YouTube, you get 30 bad videos before you can finally find the one that actually shows you how to do it right. And then we have our outdoor or our hunt cast online series, which is more of our raw along for the hunt type of show. Um, and you can find that on our website as well, thegreenmeoutdoors.com. But find us there, and we got to have you on for a podcast as well. And hopefully everyone will tune into the History Channel later on this year. Yeah, absolutely, man. I'm going to keep uh, catching up on content in anticipation for the last half of the year. And, yeah, we'll get on, do a podcast together again. And good luck out there in South Carolina, man. Thank you, brother. You have a great day.